about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening. The first Bible reading is Isaiah chapter 53, to be found on page 731 of the Pew Bible. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract. To attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, crucif- he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his, de- of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and the transgression of my people, and for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will, he, he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Um, Tonight's second reading comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. and can be found on page 1152. Galatians 2 from verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him face to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, 
You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that when that then that you would force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing." Uh, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here at Newtown and Erskineville Church, and it's great to be with you tonight. Um, we're halfway through this series on Galatians, exploring what it means to be gospel-free, not just any kind of free, but gospel-free. Uh, last time I spoke, um, I took us to the good news, just the simplicity of the good news of Jesus, who died for us, that we might be free, and how that brings unity, and we looked at the character of Jesus and how he shapes the way we live Today we zoom in a little further to look at two key doctrines. I, just, I know you just turned off for a moment there, doctrine sounds boring, but my hope tonight is that we see how understanding uh, Christian faith actually shapes the way we live, uh, reorders our desires as we come into an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us and how he works in us. That sounds a lot, we're going to get there. And then next week, we're looking at how the Spirit brings freedom particularly. So that's a bit of a mud map if, uh, if you're new tonight or if you've forgotten where we've been. But tonight we dig in and I want us to wrestle with what it means to live the justified life. You might not know what justified means or kind of you might have some idea. Hold on to that for a moment because what I can't help but notice is just how this kind of story begins. I love a drama that starts with kind of drama, you know, kind of that tension right up from the get-go. And here we have Peter, a great apostle uh, in the early church, uh, a close disciple of Jesus. And then we have Paul, another great apostle and a great missionary in the early church. And there's kind of a bit of catfighting going on, it seems. Um, there is Peter when he came to Antioch. Paul opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So what is going on between these two apostles, these two heavyweights in the early church that gets Paul so agitated? And it's because Paul is banging on about what it means to live the justified life. And Peter has slipped into living the self-justified life. Now, I'm so glad Peter's in the Bible. He gives me hope because I slip into that all the time. And so Paul's words for Peter are words for us. Because I think it's a human problem, and it's a real privilege to open these words tonight as we zoom in. Now, let's kind of start by just looking at Peter's life. Um, Peter, he was a Jewish fisherman. Uh, he kind of knew how to fish. He knew what it meant to be one of God's people. And he knew particularly that kind of we're one of God's people. He meant to kind of, you're, you're a holy people. You're kind of honoring a holy God. 
And one way that that was kind of demonstrated is that if you walked into the temple, you know, that sacred place in Jerusalem where people, where the Jews worshipped God particularly, if you kind of walked through that temple, you'd get to a sign, kind of, you'd expect maybe a nice welcome sign, um, like at a church or something. Instead, you come across this sign, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade. And the plaza of the temple zone, whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Not so welcoming, but in that sign, you get a kind of picture of the holiness of God and just how protective the Jews were about having foreigners, Gentiles, come into that space who don't know God, don't fear Him. That's holy, sacred space. Now, Peter knew that, and Jesus called him to be a fisherman of men, not just a fisherman of fish, but a fisherman of men. And it was only when, really, Jesus rose from the dead and poured out His Spirit that the light started to really come on for Peter. Because as we might remember from when we did Acts um, a few months back, in Acts 10, Peter has a vision about uh, the unclean things that he knows he's not allowed to eat. And in the vision, he hears God saying, uh, eat. And he's like, what's that about? I'm not allowed to eat that. And three times this happens, and at the same time, he's being called to meet with a Gentile. And Peter starts to connect the dots and he thinks, okay, maybe God's actually opening up here uh, and he wants me to share the good news of Jesus with this Gentile, even though we kind of, you know, clash, have those barriers of holiness. And as he shares the good news, God pours out his spirit on the Gentiles, on this Roman centurion that he'd been called to meet. And at that moment, Peter realizes that the good news of Jesus And the Spirit of God is to be poured out on all who believe in Jesus. And that's a real light bulb bulb moment for him. Now, he knew this. And yet we read verse 12. Before certain men came from James, James being the brother of Jesus and a great leader in the Jerusalem church, there's a bunch of people who came from him, not necessarily with his authority, but nonetheless, these religious people came from Jerusalem Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, and that's beautiful. That's that kind of table fellowship of kind of God's God's good news is for all who believe in Jesus, not just for Jews. And yet, as we keep reading, but when these religious people arrived, Peter began to draw back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid of the religious people. And at this point, we tap into this kind of fear of man that is such a powerful driver in our life. Peter knew the truth of the gospel, and yet the fear of man was actually driving his actions. See, when we fear other people, we're seeking their approval of us. And in that moment, we're kind of self-justifying, kind of like we're okay, we're good. I remember reading a book a while ago by Ed Welch called When God is Small and People Are Big. It was a profound book for me because I struggle with this all the time. And God's been kind of growing me, and I'll share a bit more about that afterwards. But in that book, Ed says, We fear people because they expose and humiliate us, because they reject and ridicule or despise us, or because they attack and oppress us. And in an age obsessed with self-worth, we gain the approval of others to avoid such fears. Because if they give us approval, then we don't need to fear them. We kind of rebalance the system, no longer fearing God, but fearing what others think of us. And even just in the micro-approvals of sort of Facebook swipes, I kind of wonder how much we are soaking in this kind of culture of self-worth and approval of others and fear of man. Whatever Peter's reason, 
his fear of man leads him to not only alter his behavior, but to lead others astray. You know, they said here, um, uh, so how is it that, uh, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You can see that in verse 14. Peter is moving away from the simplicity of fearing God alone to actually following all these rules and regulations and asking other people to do the same so that you can see that I'm doing a good job, I can see you're doing a good job, and kind of in the process, we self-justify. We kind of think we're doing okay because of the approval we've received from others. And Peter will not have a bar, Paul will not have a bar of it. His answer in verse 16 is this. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are not being approved by what others say of us or think of us. We are approved by what God sees. And particularly, he sees those who have faith in Jesus. He sees what Jesus has done. We're going to unpack that tonight. I remember Jesus, he speaks on one occasion of these religious people who pray kind of big public prayers. And he says, they've received their reward in full. They've received their approval from others who think they're doing a great job in their religiosity. But Paul takes us back to the simplicity of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died for us. This is what we're going to drill into tonight. He's exposing in us the real problem. Not self-esteem issues, not self-worth issues. Being justified by what Jesus has done exposes our real problem. And that real problem is sin. The Bible has two ways of kind of viewing sin particularly, relationally and legally. Relationally, and I spoke a little bit about this last time, we see that kind of story of the prodigal son, where the younger son says to the father in the story, Dad, I kind of, I wish you were dead so that you would give me the inheritance that you would otherwise give me when you die, and then I no longer have to live under your rules, and I, I can have that money and spend it the way I want to. And that kind of, that moment there says the relationship is dead. That moment there is where the younger son says, I want to do it my way. I'm sick of listening to you, Dad. And what happens in that story is, and that parable that Jesus shared, is that, that that younger son goes off and squanders that wealth until he's got nothing left. And he finds himself in a pigsty, eating or desperate for the food that even pigs would eat, realizing that he has cut himself off from the source of life, from the source of blessing. In that picture there, we see the complete relational breakdown of what it means for us to be sinful, to turn away from God with our rebelliousness and say, actually, I'd rather do it my way. And that's a human problem. The other way that the Bible helps us look into sin is in legal terms. And this word justification, justified, that is a legal term. Justification in law speak is a a way of describing a reason to relieve the defendant of liability. That is, if, you have, um, if you've done something that you should be declared guilty for, if there's a reason why you would be justified as not guilty, that's justification. And what it does, this, this language, is it takes us into the courtroom as though God were judge, and he really is judge, and you were to stand before him. And what good will just self-justification do at that point? When, you kind of, when God looks at, at your life, and you say, well, it's not my fault. Kind of, 
And I see this every, every morning, just this morning as I was kind of putting out a number of fights among my children. I pull up one of them and say, what are you doing, buddy? And he's like, was it my fault? It was his fault. <laughs> and what I see in my children is a mirror reflection of their dad. The way that I justify myself because of what others did and not taking responsibility for myself. But when you stand before God the judge, will that cut it? God is deeply concerned with the injustices of the world and our participation in that, our rebellion against him, our wrongdoing. And at that moment, God is no longer small and people big. God is big and we are very small. It's a confronting image to imagine. God as judge and us in the courtroom before him. But the good news of the gospel, of Christian faith, is that in that moment, Jesus steps in between us and the judge and says, I will take the punishment on behalf of Mike. And Jesus dies on the cross to die a sinner's death. He dies for me that I might be justified that I might be forgiven, that the Father, that the, the judge would look upon me and see not my wrongdoing, but see Jesus Christ in his perfection and having justice executed upon him, see me perfected, see me not guilty. And that, is, that is an incredible gift that we can barely comprehend. Who is man that God would do such a thing for us? Who are we that God would step into that moment, that Jesus would step in and take the price for us? I like to occasionally dabble with a bit of Richard Dawkins just to kind of get a different perspective on things. And it's good to chat with this kind of stuff with your friends and skeptics and just get their angle. Dawkins looks at this moment and he sees a deeply unpleasant idea. He sees a vicious, sadomasochistic, repellent God he does love his adjectives. He says this, if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having Jesus tortured and executed in payment? That's a reasonable question, I suppose. But I wonder if Dawkins thinks that our sinfulness is just like when you bump someone in the bus in the morning and they say sorry and you say no worries. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a polite thing to do. That's a nice thing to do. But I think when we understand the magnitude of our sin, we actually realize that we're way beyond just a bump in the bus. See, justice, and particularly retributive justice, is our best attempt to make amends for something that is truly broken. When someone is murdered, sorry, mate, won't cut it. We can't bring the person back, but there needs to be justice done so that we might protect the sanctity of life so that we might honor the family of, of, that have just lost a loved one. We, we need those two angles. We need the judicial system. We need judgment to protect justice. And yet we also need that relational aspect. We need forgiveness, that we might be restored. And what we have in Jesus is both. You know, just as a bit of an aside... When you look at Dawkins' anthropology, like what it means to be a human, and put that side by side with Jesus, you see something very different. For Dawkins, his anthropology is just laid out quite clearly in a little essay um, called um, Stop Beating Basil's Car. And in that little essay, 
he writes something as strange but as confronting as this. Isn't the murderer or the rapist just a machine with a defective component or a defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes? Doesn't a truly scientific and mechanistic view of the nervous system make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? And he goes on to say, it makes no more sense to blame someone through the judicial system uh, that, of, a, of a faulty person than it is to take... Um, sorry, let me, let me quote him, actually, rather than paraphrase him. Don't judicial hearings to decide questions of blame or responsibility make as little sense for a faulty man as for a faulty car? For Dawkins, he just wants to take us into some kind of mechanic and sort of tweak a few things and fix us up and send us on our way. It's not your fault, you're a bit broken. I find that quite disturbing. Our desire for real justice is real because we have a deep appreciation that things are not the way they ought to be and they need to be addressed. What we see in Jesus, in his death on the cross, exposes in us a real problem. But it also addresses our real longing for justice, our real desire for things to be fixed, even if it cuts across our own heart. And what we see in justification, in being justified in Christ, is his willingness to step in to take the punishment for us that we might be forgiven and restored, all the while God executing justice. Now, whatever you have done, whatever label you've given yourself, whatever guilt and shame you are carrying, I want you to know tonight that God has truly forgiven you if you trust what Christ has done for you. Do you believe that? You are truly forgiven. That God looks upon you as he looks upon his perfect son because of what he has done for you. Surely that is the most liberating news, the best news that a broken human can hear. I don't want to just go to a mechanic and get a few tweaks I want someone who has been through the sufferings of life, who has experienced humanity, perfected it, and taken me and understands me and forgives me and restores me from the inside. That is what I want in Jesus, and that is what he is offering. Just this week I was asked, what's a good Christian? It's a good question, isn't it, from someone from, you know, just exploring Christianity and kind of seeing my life and hearing bits and pieces. Mike, what's a good Christian? I said, I reject the question. <laughs> What's a good Christian? That, that, that question flies too close to me for what it means to be a law-abiding citizen or too close to Peter's problem of self-justification and need to kind of do all these rules to kind of gain the approval of others and from God, as he thinks. There is one type of Christian, a Christian who trusts in Jesus' death for forgiveness and new life. I will concede there are mature Christians Christians who have soaked in the simplicity and the beauty of the good news of Jesus, that they are forgiven, who have wrestled through the experiences and ups and downs of life and let that goodness soak into every crevice of their life. And I'm so glad at this church we have a number of mature Christians bringing their wisdom and experience to bear upon us, spurring us on. But there is one type of Christian, the one who trusts in Jesus. So wherever you're at tonight, I hope God is speaking to you right now. But the thing is, Peter knew all this. Peter doesn't pick him up on his false understanding of the gospel in as much as his hypocrisy. 
See, the thing is, Peter knew that the gospel was for all. He knew that we were saved by faith alone. And yet he'd allowed the fear of man to creep in and reshape his behavior. He was being a hypocrite, knowing one thing and doing another. And so it's right for Paul to pick him up and say, Brother, I, I don't see the alignment between what you believe and what you're doing. And so it's appropriate, is, is it not, to kind of have people to speak into our lives, maybe not as confrontational as Peter, who should have known better as an apostle, but just someone who would say, Mike, could you just talk me through kind of what's going on there? Could, could we kind of bring that into alignment? And I'm grateful for close friends in my life who, are, who I trust and are able to speak into my life like that. I hope you have someone that you trust and that you might be able to say similar things to as we take up what it means to bring our whole life into alignment with the good news of Jesus. Lest we think that we need to gain the approval of others and from God by doing good things. No, no, there is one way that you are saved and that is by faith alone in what Christ has done for you. But there's, there's a question to come, isn't there? There's a question of relig that has religious power. Verse 17, read it with me. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? And you can imagine it's the religious people coming in and say, it doesn't make sense to be saved by faith alone. Could you just do anything from that point onwards? Peter, you, you, can't, you can't just sit with Gentiles and kind of just not do all the Jewish customs and the law. You've got to do all that stuff as well so that God might approve you, look upon you well. And Peter falls into that trap of seeking their approval to, that he might find trying God's approval. And at that point, Paul says two things. One, you will only find approval in Jesus Christ. You are only justified by faith in him, not by works. But secondly, he's also going to say, absolutely not to Christ promoting sin. By being saved by faith alone, that does not mean you can do whatever you want after that. And that's where he takes us even deeper into one of the most profound doctrines of Christian faith. And that's what it means to be united with Christ. See, the thing is, Christ died 2,000 years ago once and for all. And as Christopher Hitchens writes, as he kind of looks skeptically at that act, he says, I'm told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing, and in consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins have forgiven me, and I may hope to enjoy everlasting life? Like this, this distant historical thing, what's that got to do with me? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that. It is not some distant thing. But if we have trust in Jesus Christ, we are united with him. And what we see here is, the, is, is just how deeply personal Christian faith is. It, it is not believing in a distant being or following some sort of cold rules, hoping that some God we don't really know might find us well. No, no, we are united with Christ so that what is his is ours and what was due to us he took on. He binds himself with our predicament. And as much as he dies for us in our place, he rose again three days later, for death could not hold him down. And his victory is now our victory. Is that not something to be incredibly joyful about? That we are bound with Christ. 
And he is it now at work in us. Look at these verses. For, though the, for through the law, verse 19, I died to the law. So I recognize that the law just says to me, I'm not okay and there's something deeply wrong with me so that I might live for God, but not just in a motivational sense, like I'm really thankful, God, kind of you've really inspired me. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. In his death, I have died. And at that moment, the sinful Mike, the Mike who kind of has all these labels of being a failure, of being broken, of being unworthy, all those are dead with Christ. And now, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And try and get your head around the kind of the depth of the personal metaphor here. What does it mean that Christ lives in me? Rory Shiner, who's a pastor in Western Australia, wrote a little book called One Forever. And he has this analogy of a plane. And I used to be an aeronautical engineer, and so it kind of it, it works well for me. But um, he, he kind of says, if you want to... If you want to fly to Melbourne, what kind of relationship do you need to have with the plane? Uh, would it be helpful to be under the authority of the plane, I mean, underneath the plane? Not a good place to be when it takes off, I might add. Being under the authority of the plane doesn't really mean anything. What about if kind of, you're inspired by the plane, like really motivated by just the beauty of flight and kind of you know, try and flap your wings and, and sort of do what the plane does, being highly motivated by the awesomeness of flight? I think it was the Red Bull comp this weekend where people kind of build little things and run off the kind of uh, platform into the harbour. What's that called again? Does anyone know? There we go. Perfect. Yep. Um, and you won't see many of those people fly. In fact, any of them. They all crash and burn. It is not enough to be inspired by Jesus. And I wonder if that's the take that a lot of people have, that he was, a, you know, at best, he's a good teacher. And if you kind of you could be inspired by his life, you might find a good life. Paul says, No. The only way you're going to get to Melbourne is if you are in the plane. The plane's doing the work. You need to be in the plane. And it doesn't matter whether you're a nervous traveler or whether you're a frequent flyer. You have the same trust to take a step through the door and take a seat that the plane might fly you to your destination. The thing is, friends, we are being invited to be in Christ as he transforms us from the inside out, as he takes us on the journey to glorification, as he, as he works his glory in us. And I find this just absolutely profound. You know, if, if I was Peter, and I like, well, let's just say, as I read this, as someone who struggles with the fear of man, does it not just break all of that down as you're just liberated by this good news, as it kind of just soaks in you that not only did Christ do this for you, but he is at work in you. I don't need the approval of others. For God has set his approval upon me because of Christ. And over the last few years, Jesus has been doing work in me so that I might disentangle my care for people from my care of what they think of me. And that's been a profound journey. And it takes time. I'm not instantly transformed. Jesus is doing a work in me. It's relational. I look forward next week to exploring the role of the Spirit in all this. But I wonder how this is hitting you tonight. I wonder how God's work, Word is at work in you as Christ is in you and works in you. I wonder if you're heavy laden with guilt 
with shame. You come to church and you kind of, you know what week's gone by. And you come into this kind of holy place where you've got to put on the Sunday face. Maybe you're just sort of pushing that down. I want you to at least know that you are truly forgiven because of what Christ has done for you. But as we seek to apply what it means for Christ to be in us and how we have every spiritual blessing in him, there was just three examples this week that became quite vivid as a result of what we're working through. I was chatting with someone just yesterday about uh, about this being united with Christ. And they gave me the most mundane example, but in that was a beauty that kind of I found quite beautiful. The procrastinator. Do we have any of those? No, don't put your hands up. The ones who say they can't finish their essay because they're tired and stressed. You know, in that moment when you're feeling like a failure and you kind of push that down with another cat video on YouTube. Yeah, you know it's true. When your strength is fading, in that moment... Would you consider that God really has good works prepared for you? And that essay might not feel like anything profound. But would you trust that he would strengthen you, he would resource you to get on with the good works laid before you? And in that moment, I just find this really interesting. We're actually trusting something beyond our circumstances. We're not feeling like doing that. But as you step out in faith, would you... Would you trust that Jesus, who is at work in you, will resource you to get on with the good works laid out before you? Such a simple example. Or how about when you've been wronged and you feel like it's your right to to hold on to that that anger, uh, that that frustration, the, the bitterness, the hurt. I want you to go back and be reminded, just like Peter was reminded, that you are forgiven. That while you were a sinner, while you were enemies, Christ died for you. And while you might not feel like forgiving that person, while you might feel like you've got to let go of this bitterness, and that's that's not going to be a great place to just let go of all that, would you trust that Christ will resource you to actually bring your life into alignment with who he is and what he's doing in you? Will you trust that he will be at work, alive in you, and that he would replace that bitterness and that anger with freedom and joy. Well, let's go one step further. What about someone who's struggling with addiction to sin? You know, a part of their life that they just can't, even as a Christian, just can't let go of. They keep falling into. Pick on something like porn. It feels kind of awkward to kind of speak so specifically to this, but it's good to occasionally preach and just kind of the rough and tumbles of life. In that space, people are often heavily weighed down with guilt and shame. And that person needs to know that as ugly as that is, what they're doing, they are truly forgiven if they trust in Christ. Again and again and again and again. You can barely understand how amazing that grace is, that he would apply that to you again and again. Friends, I want you to believe that. I want you to trust that what Christ has done is once and for all. And because you are liberated in that, in, in that reconciliation, in that forgiveness, would you be able to trust your Father with that sin and say, I, I'm struggling here. 
will you help me with this? I don't want to hide in guilt and shame. You know, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not even lust after a woman in your heart, he is painting a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, where there is no more hashtag me too, and where people are treated with dignity and not objects for self-gratification. And I want you to trust that while there is momentary pleasure on offer, that there is something greater in store for you. And I want you to trust that Jesus will resource you again and again as he is at work in you to transform your desires. And the things with kind of habitual sin, whatever it is, you really warp your thinking and your desires. And I want you to trust that Jesus will reorder those as he is alive in you. And it's slow and it's painful. But friends, the one who died and rose to new life is at work in you. And I want you to trust him. Tonight, I want us to live the justified life. And that centers on, is built on trust in what he has done. Do not fall into self-justification, desiring the approval of others as though God would be happy with the good things you do. Do the good things as a result of the fact that you have been set free in Christ and is that He is at work in you because He is good, because He died for you, and He is now alive in you. That is good news. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.